This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey there, Brandon Harvey here. I have some really exciting news from the Good 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 team. We just printed issue five of the Good Newspaper, our print newspaper filled with good news. This means that we're getting ready to ship these out to you so soon. In fact, maybe we're shipping them while you're listening to this episode. Our team is hopeful, we're tired, we're full, and we're still in shock that we've been creating this thing for over a year now. It's been the wildest ride, and we're so grateful. We are so excited about this new issue. We have so many stories inside that will give you hope. Specifically, we include stories of journalists saving democracy, Mormons showing up to support LGBTQ youth, Nigerian heroes, inclusion in the intimate apparel sector, and the global eradication of polio. Uniquely, this issue also includes a good news story on how to plan a wedding that's ethical, environmentally friendly, and gives back. Don't miss out on all of the real messy hope inside of our newest issue. Visit our shop at goodnewspaper.co or click the link in our show notes to get issue five of the Good Newspaper. All right, now here's the show. If your love for me requires that I hide parts of who I am, then you don't love me. Love is never a request for silence. Civil rights activist, teacher, and author DeRay McKesson is known for these words that feel more important than ever before in America today. As one of the leading voices in the Black Lives Matter movement and the co-founder of Campaign Zero, DeRay has spent his life working to connect individuals with knowledge and tools and provide citizens and policymakers with common sense policies to ensure equity. I am so honored that he's on the podcast today to talk about his new book, On the Other Side of Freedom and his personal journey of advocacy and activism that led him to where he is today. Dre has advocated for issues related to children, youth, and families since he was a teen. And spurred by the death of Michael Brown in the following protests in Ferguson, Missouri, Dre has become a key voice in the effort to confront systems and structures that have led to the mass incarceration and police killings of Black and other minority populations. You may recognize him as the host of Pod Save the People, and he was also named one of the world's greatest leaders by Fortune magazine in 2015 and as one of the 30 most influential people on the internet by Time magazine in 2016. I am Brandon Harvey, and this is Sounds Good. This is the weekly podcast where we have conversations with inspiring people who are rejecting cynicism and using their lives to make an impact. Sounds Good is not your typical three steps to success podcast. We don't host this podcast for the sake of leaving you with bullet points on self-improvement. We deeply believe that our lives are more complex than that. So we show up here on Sounds Good to ask big questions, dive into nuance, and learn from each other's stories. I was so glad to get to have this conversation, so let's just jump straight into it. I hope that this will leave you feeling that there is truly a strong case for hope.
So, DeRay, welcome to uh, the podcast. I'm excited to get to talk with you today. It's good to be here. I want to kind of start back at the beginning uh, and uh, just kind of dive into where you got started. You grew up in, remind me again, Baltimore? Yep, from Baltimore. I'm back in Baltimore. Baltimore through and through. Awesome. Baltimore through and through. Uh, And you were raised mostly by your dad, right? Yeah, so my mother left when I was uh, very young and... And my father raised us along with my great-grandmother helping him out. How's your relationship with uh, your dad today? He's great. Me and my father and sister are really close. That's amazing. It was just the three of us for so long. Uh, I like this part in the book where you talked about, because uh, your name is DeRay, your sister's name is Turay, your dad is Ray, is that right? His name is Calvin, but he went by, for whatever reason, they called him Ray uh, <laughs> when he was a kid, so... His friends call him Ray. That's amazing. And you all moved on to a street that was, it was something like that. What was it again? It was Delray, yeah. When we were in like middle school and he thought it was adorable. And I'm like, Dad, this is <laughs> Oh, that's so funny. Growing up, what did you kind of think was, was going to be your future? You know, what, what kind of goals did you have growing up as a, as a kid? So, I, you know, I didn't actually. So when I was, I did a lot of student government and that was like what I was focused on. I hadn't ever thought about a life after high school. Like that was just, it wasn't a, I don't know. Just didn't, so I didn't have these things I needed to check off. And da, da, da. Student government was like the biggest aspiration I had when I was young. And I did it through college, you know, I student body president in college. And da, da, da. So it wasn't until the end of college that I started to think about like what it meant to be an adult in the world or like what I wanted to do. And I became a teacher and did all these other things, but I didn't grow up with like some, some like dream job or, or thing I must do when I got older. Like student government was always the like aspirational thing that I had. And I did it until I couldn't do it anymore. Did you feel like the, the kind of government angle was, just kind of a natural set of leadership skills or you saw specific changes that you wanted to make? What do you think some of that motivation might have been? You know, I think the uh, consequence of like the world being small is that sometimes it's just what's in front of you. And nobody around me immediately had like gone and done things that I was like, oh, I guess I want to do that. So the the aspirational thing that was like big for me that I could like create and move and have a team and be a part of a team like that was student government it was where I like learned how to imagine and build and like it was on seemingly smaller things right so it was like about like we planned homecoming and we did those sort of things but it was those are the things that I like we started with an idea and then we turned it into like something in real life so to me student government was like the magical like that was the only magic I'd ever known so Again, like I didn't have to do anything different until, like I didn't have a different dream until the end of college. Got it. And that was when you decided to go down the Teach for America route, right? Well, it's when I decided to go uh, into education. So Teach for America was uh, the vehicle by which I taught. Um, And then I, you know, opened up an after school center. I trained and supported a third of all the new teachers in the city. I worked in the school system for the first time in Baltimore. Then I worked in Minneapolis public schools. And then I most recently came back as the chief of human capital. So Teacher America has been a part of the journey. Yeah. Um, it's sort of weird when people make Teacher America the totality of the journey. Totally. That makes sense. Those early days, you were, you know, hands-on in classrooms. What was kind of your experience working with students day-to-day like? Teaching is the best thing I ever did. So, you know, I taught math, which was... Um, 
the hard thing about math is that kids are really math phobic, right? So either yeah. people think they're like geniuses, which is very few kids. A lot of kids think that their struggling in math is actually a sign of their like failure as a person or like their intellectual weakness. And so being a math teacher was, you know, half a psychology game of like, you will fail at this. And that is not an indictment of you, right? That like part mm. of the practice, uh, part of what it means to practice is actually getting things wrong and learning from it. And, and normalizing that in math was actually pretty big. And the second was like, you know, I think about the classroom as the first place uh, that kids learn about what power looks like outside of the home. It's like the first place that you're like with all these strangers and have to negotiate what your body does and what conflict looks like and, and what joy looks like. And So as a teacher, we got to do those things. So I think about some of the coolest moments in class were moments where students were practicing and doing all this stuff, but in a way that was like about love and about joy. And we had a lot of fun together. And so math wasn't this like painful experience for any of us. Math got to be sort of a cool experience and a fun experience where everybody got to move. And, you know, I taught a decade ago at this point. So my my students are older now. They're like, you know, 20 and 21. Wow. Uh, so it's sort of wild to see them grow up. What a fascinating, great perspective on education that it's you know, this opportunity for people to learn about all of these things that are, you know, greater than just, you know, algebra or whatever you're teaching. Um, and also, I mean, I think about when I was a student, how I felt like I was so bad at math, but my math teachers were the most impactful teachers on me, probably for that very reason that I learned about failure, getting up from that and, you know, choosing to continue. Uh, you know, it teaches you a greater sense of resilience than, you know, the classes that you can lean into with your strengths. Yeah, it was great. And, you know, I taught 60, 90, and 120 minute classes, which is a very long time. Yeah. 11 year olds to do anything. Well, <laughs> but I learned a lot. And, like, I think one of the reasons I was an effective math teacher is that I was actually like a pretty poor math student. So I completely, not only did I empathize with them, but I actually could like anticipate the things that they were going to struggle with because those were things that I'd struggle with. Um, so I learned, a, I, I learned a lot and they, they, you know, we, we did really well together. I'm still really close to the people I taught with and, you know, I moved back to Baltimore after I taught. So I wasn't in that particular school community, but I was there the second year that it ever existed. So it was beautiful to like see a school be born. So you moved back to Baltimore, you're working in the education world. Is this the time when, uh, the shooting of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri happens? So I, um, um, I teach in New York. I moved to Baltimore, back home, working, open up an after-school center, train new teachers, and start working in the school system. The superintendent leaves. Uh, the, the, Dr. Alonzo, who was the superintendent I got hired under, he left. Um, and a lot of us left when Dr. Alonzo left. So I went to Minneapolis to have a, a similar role. Mm. And when Dr. Alonzo left, um, you know, I moved to Minneapolis, and, and Mike Brown was killed while I was living in Minneapolis. And when that happened, how did you find out? Was it Twitter? Were you watching? The, I guess it might not have been the news. Do you remember that moment? Yeah, so it was, uh, it was a combination of Twitter and the news. But the thing that sort of mobilized me that made it real and not sort of another news story was there's a national moment of silence that happened. And I was actually with a group of teachers. Uh, we were, I, was like teach, I was speaking as a, a former teacher on a panel somewhere. And they were like, hey, this thing happened. Somebody else we know is actually in Ferguson. It was Brittany Packnett. And they were like, there's a moment of silence happening across the country. Can you, like, do you want to, like, we're going to go. You're welcome to go if you want, if you want. And I was mm. like, oh, I, I will definitely go. 
And that was when I was standing in this, uh, I write about it in the book, I was standing in a, um, in a room in Minneapolis with like all these other people around this moment of silence about Mike Brown. And I was like, wow, I didn't, I didn't understand the gravity of it. And that weekend is when I got in the car and drove to Ferguson and, uh, you know, I planned to stay for two days, but it turned into, um, you know, much longer, longer time for all of us. What was that first experience when you arrived like? Was that when, did you first meet Brittany Packnett? Was she the first person that you interacted with there? And so I got put in touch with Brittany through, um, through a woman named Jessica, who I'd known for a long time too. And Brittany actually found somebody else's house for me to, to stay at, which was funny. So I got the call. She was like, DeRay, my friends are going to host you. So I go to their house. I drop off my stuff. And then we go to the street and then I meet Brittany for the first time. So technically, the guys whose house I stayed at are the first people I've met. Brittany was like, and then I met Brittany very shortly after. And she was, uh, you know, we've stayed very close ever since then. And you guys started organizing together and started protesting together would you call yourself an activist before this moment or when did you start kind of considering yourself an activist you know i was a youth organizer in baltimore when i was a kid and i did a lot of student government stuff and i did a lot of stuff as a student activist like pushing the school system to be better and and those sort of things i think about identifying as a protester and what that meant politically to my own self-identity like that was born in the street in ferguson um, so that was really different. It was not until I became, not until that moment that I under that I truly understood the way systems come down and bear on people. I think that I, my live reality bore that out as a kid and as a youth organizer and da da da. But it was being in the street and like being tear gassed and being shot at by bullets and those sort of things. And I was like, wow, I get it. Like I, it all makes sense in a way that it didn't make sense before. Uh, and that was when I'm identified as a protester. For when you went over to Missouri, how many Twitter followers did you have at that time? I had about 800 uh, back then. You know, it feels like a, <laughs> a while ago, but yeah. It's interesting to think about, you know, you show up and you're anonymous in the streets at this point. Uh, but then you go on to, you know, be one of the most well-known figures in Missouri. And then, you know, following that in Baton Rouge and Baltimore, what was that transition like for you as you kind of grew in uh, people's awareness of you and, and kind of grew as, as a leader, as a part of this movement? Yeah. So the best thing about uh, St. Louis is that it was, we were just focused on the work at hand, right? So what had 800 followers or 500,000 in St. Louis actually had the same impact the whole way through. It was just like mm. the, so we weren't really paying attention to the outs- what the outside world was thinking about us besides that they were supporting us. So what made what was interesting is like when the you know we were in the street for 400 days uh and when the first wave of protests ended and i you know i moved back home to baltimore and da 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 that was the, that was the first time i realized that the world had been watching us the whole time because that just wasn't it didn't matter in the same way to me and to many of us uh, before then so you know it was interesting to see that happen uh, i'm always mindful of like how do we use the platform how do all of us use our platforms yeah. to amplify the work so I started the newsletter that was a big deal in the protests. And um, it was about like taking the best tweets that I saw and taking like events that needed to be amplified and telling them. So I've always thought about like, how do I use this platform? Not just so people understand me better, but that people understand the work better. That totally makes sense. And I can feel that too. I think that I, uh, I think that was around the time when I first started following you and Netta and Brittany. And for me, it was 
so important and valuable to have that direct window into what was happening, kind of the reality from so many points of view on the ground on kind of what the experience was. And of course, it changed the game for the conversation in the United States. But but ultimately, I think that it opened a lot of opened the eyes of a lot of people like me uh, to what was going on. And, and then I think it just kind of opened up the way that I was thinking about, okay, how can I get involved from this? Even if I'm not out in St. Louis, how can I uh, be a part of this? And I, I think that in many ways, you and the community you were with brought that to life. The thing I've been thinking about is how that was really new. The way that we all use social media in that moment was new for uh, for social justice here in the States. Uh, it had been used in uprisings ac- across the world before, but it was the first time that you saw the mass media saying one story and then people on the ground saying a different story. And we were all saying it together. We were all saying it in unison. And, and that actually really mattered. So it was powerful to see. You, We've seen people mimic the tactics that we used in the street then. We've seen them mimic it almost every following a big moment or big protest or big action. Uh, and that's been fascinating and beautiful to watch because we actually didn't really know what we were doing. We just knew that we were <laughs> right, right? We knew that like Mike Brown should be alive and we knew that we weren't going to go home. But the way we mobilized people, the way we used Twitter, the way we did those things was actually really interesting. And you have to remember, it was like before, like Twitter video, it was before Facebook video, it was before Periscope, it was before Facebook Live, it was before people use Instagram really to do this stuff, it was before stories. So we were, it was like heavily text-based. Now it's like, now this stuff is like an interesting combination of like video and text, but that just wasn't what it was yeah, I was going to ask how much intentionality was going into what you were doing or if it was just the natural response to where you were at. Um, and it sounds like it it may have been that. But what was some of the strategy that you were thinking through as you started realizing that this was working, that it was effective and that people were paying attention? Yeah, I think that we, um, for me, as somebody who had like one of the biggest uh, platforms like on Twitter, it was like, how can I, and that was when it was just 140 characters, how do we tell a consistent story that everybody can understand? Like that was the thing, right? So yeah, I could say this in like a really complicated way and da da da, but like that was before threads even. So it was like, I needed yeah. to make it as tight as possible so people could repeat it and understand it. And that's what went into all of it with Vine. Vine was where most of the videos were. Is that with Vine, you know, it was only six seconds. So we would take a longer video on our phones then we put it into Vine and then we literally stand on like the side of the, the street and we'd like try and listen to the best six seconds and then post that. It was just so different. You know, there are people now who just like stand in the street and just like, they just video live stream everything. We're like, Whew, we would have loved to like just live stream everything. Totally. And I remember at some point, you know, Periscope comes along and that became a great resource, especially in, you know, I, if I remember right, People were live streaming when you were arrested in, what was it? Was it Baltimore? It was Baton Rouge. I was live Baton streaming Rouge. in Baton Rouge. Yeah. It was wild that people could, you know, I remember on Twitter, people being like, hey, DeRay was arrested and being able to go online and see the moments that that happened and the accountability involved in all of that is a total game changer. Yeah, and it was like, I remember when Jack, uh, the CEO of Twitter, was like, DeRay, we, uh, like, I remember when they were considering Periscope. I, I had an early version of Periscope. 
so it was powerful to use the early version, but like it actually just wasn't out in the protest, you know, like we couldn't, we just like didn't, it wasn't there, you know, like we couldn't use it. So, yeah, man, I want to talk about your book for a minute because first of all, it's fantastic. I've got so many dog ears and underlines and uh, I'm absolutely planning on reading it again. But what most struck me or what struck me immediately was, you know, the subtitle, which is the case for hope. Why did you choose to focus on hope in your book? You could have focused on any topic you wanted to. People were highly anticipating this book. Why hope? Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, hope is a belief that our tomorrows can be better than our today's. And to me, like, that's just like why I do this work. I don't do, you know, the reality is that like, we shouldn't have to fight for our lives like this. Like we just shouldn't yeah. have to. So we do it because we have to, not because we necessarily want to. So I want to go back to a career that like, is not rooted in survival and blah, 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 right? Like I want to, like, I love teaching. I love working in school systems. Like I love that sort of stuff that we do this work because we have to is I also think that we can win, right? And there are a lot of people who write about this work who actually don't think that we can win, but they're like, you should do it anyway. It's like, I actually think we can win. And that's about hope. Like, I think that I'm reminded, I write about this in the book that like, uh, you know, some people will say that the system is, we'll say the system is broken. And some people will say it was designed this way as sort of like a defeatist thing. And what I say is that I'm reminded that it was designed, right? People made this up. Mm, and because good. people made it up, like we can make something else. And like that to me is like, a that's like about hope. That's beautiful. And in the first chapter, I'm, I was really drawn to the first chapter. You talked about hope and faith and dreams and optimism. And what would you say that these, these ideas have to do with activism and doing work in the world? And what's kind of the distinction between them? Yeah, so people should read that chapter because I think that it is, I can write about it in a way that is more, like it's just tighter for people. I even think about like all the talks I've given about hope. It's like something different when you read it. But again, I think about yeah. hope as a belief that our tomorrows can be better than our today's. I think about faith is, is sort of a, a sense of certainty. So when we think about um, what King says, the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice, is that that is a statement about faith. He's like, it bends. It will bend. It, it's going to bend. Hope says that the arc bends because people bend it, right? That like it bends as a result of uh, something that like people have to do. It's not inevitable. And I think that hope is actually the fuel of this work and that people fight every day. People put their bodies online because they think that something better is possible. Like, I believe that. And I and I wanted to just tease that out. I think that some of our best thinkers are some writers have actually sort of written in a way that makes hope seem like a frou-frou thing. And hope is not magic. Hope is work. Ooh, and like good. I wanted to yeah. write. So hope, the beginning anchor of um, how I start to think about the world, that is why, why it's the first chapter. Well, and in many ways, the frou-frou thing is optimism don't you think and and hope is actually the thing with legs hope is the thing with work and you kind of draw that distinction in that first chapter yeah i think that optimism can be strong too but like there's like the difference between uh, do you think it will happen or do you think it can't happen hope is a belief that it can happen and faith is really powerful too um people have reason not to have faith like that i get that uh, i think that there is a strong case for hope though and I think that we've seen hope pay off. And that's what I wanted to anchor my beliefs in from the beginning. You also talked about kind of similarly, these ideas of imagination and curiosity and how they're integral to doing work in the world. 
can you break down a little bit about, um, especially imagination, because I loved the words that you had to say in, in the book about that. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, you can't fight for what you can't imagine that like when we talk about a better world, it's like you actually have to have an understanding of what you think that might mean so that you can fight for it. And it's like that simple to me. Uh, so you ask people like what is the end of mass incarceration is that people will write about like people shouldn't be in prisons and jails. And the question is like, well, what should they be doing? Right? Like, well, how do we deal with conflict? Like you need to imagine that. Right. So we should think about a world where the response to conflict isn't putting people in cages the end of prison doesn't mean the presence of justice though, right? Or like, just like with ICE, it's like, we can get rid of ICE tomorrow and the end of ICE doesn't mean the presence of a comprehensive immigration system. Like we have to actually like make that. And like, I just wanted to tease it out and like allow people to imagine. One of the things that's different between the right and the left is that the right isn't really introducing new ideas. It's ideas that we've already seen before. The left, we're like making all this stuff up. And then making stuff up is actually hard and uh, people feel like they aren't empowered to do it, that they're not smart enough. And it's like, we should all think about like, what is the, if the police aren't the people who respond to conflict, who does, right? Like we should talk about that. Like I'm completely open to the end of the police as we know them. Conflict isn't going to go anywhere. So how do we respond to conflict? And like more of us should be talking about that and thinking about and imagining what that looks like and not just leaving that to the people who have been doing it so far. Yeah. And it's really interesting because if we're imagining these ideas and they're grand and they're amazing, but if we can't pass that imagination on to other people, we can't move forward on that because people need to you know, be able to envision that. And that's where I get really excited about communicators like yourself or you know, artists or filmmakers or creators, all kinds of people who have the ability to help bridge that gap in especially like a mass medium, a way that, you know, gives, you know, large groups of people this vision that we can work towards. Because if we can't see that in our mind's eye, taking the steps to get there is is going to be really, really difficult. Yeah, yeah. We got to imagine like that has to be an actual part of the work. Like, that is real. So when we talk about the end of all this stuff, it's like, we need to figure out like what we build and the build part is what scares people, but it's also what people feel like they just aren't smart enough to engage. And it's like public education as currently configured has not only been invested in not enough, like it just hasn't, the investments haven't been there, but some of this, we just need to rethink. And we should talk about like, what is a, what is a classroom you want to send your kid to? Like what is a good teacher needs what to be prepared, right? Like you won't be right about it all, but we should actually start talking about it. So when you, when you kind of got your start in the world of, you know, activism as we know it today, you know, or as we've seen you kind of as a public figure and you're marching in the streets, at what point do you transition beyond just telling the story of what's happening to saying, okay, let's imagine what's next? Because in many ways, you know, you're just immediately responding because it was important to respond. And then I think you, it seems like you made a pivot to do that and to say, and here's what's next. How did you begin that transition and kind of what was your vision? What was the thing that you brought to life? Well, I think that, you know, at the beginning we were like, wow, system is screwed. We knew that. Didn't necessarily know why it was screwed. We thought it was like a bad prosecutor and those sort of things. Uh, and I, some of that is true. What we didn't know was the structural analysis. So we did a lot of work to figure out like what are the laws and practices and policies that actually support the police in a way that it, we just didn't understand. So that was campaign zero. I write about it in the book, starting with mapping police violence, like what does the data look like? But so now when I think about it, it's like we should, most people's entrance into this stuff is like a personalized problem. It's like somebody, a person got killed, something bad happened to a person. 
the best work that we can do in those moments is think about what systemic factors either created the conditions or protected the perpetrator for, for the trauma to ever happen in the first place. One of the things that people confuse in this work is a difference between accountability and justice. Justice is never having to experience a trauma in the first place. Accountability is a response to the trauma, right? So when we think about a world that is just, we want to set it up so like nobody's ever killed in the first place. We want to set it up where like the incentive structure doesn't have these bad outcomes happen. So people aren't traumatized. Like that's like, that's the world we want to build in a world that is just. Uh, And that's how our analysis changed. It went from being like only a personal thing to being like, wow, this is what the system does. And then pushing people to never, ever let the system off the hook. And you started working with data to kind of tell this story and understand this better and then started uh, making it easier for people to digest and communicate and disseminate as well. Yeah, that was like the whole, that was the transition from the personal to the system. So uh, we did analysis of the 100 biggest police departments with regard to their police union contracts and use of force policies and found out all these sort of wild things. So even, you know, not too long ago, people saw a video of the Baltimore police officer that um, that beat up a guy on, on the side, yeah. on the corner. Yeah. It's like in Baltimore, the law literally says that you can file anonymous complaints against uh, police officers for everything but brutality. Uh, The law also says that an officer in the probationary period can be fired during the probationary period for anything except brutality, right? And you're like, why? Why does the structure actually protect people like this? And in the book, I talk about like, you know, there's a law in California that says that any investigation of an officer that lasts more than a year can never result in discipline. You're like, that makes no, it just doesn't make sense. So we wanted to pivot. And because the reality is that you could have a great prosecutor, you could have a police chief that actually cares, and all this other stuff, but when the structures actually hamstring it like this, it actually just doesn't, like the room for change at the system level doesn't work. Of course, that totally makes sense. And I'm curious what your strategy around activism and the work that you're doing has evolved to now. You know, it's, it's grown beyond that. You've got the podcast, you've got the book. What's kind of, what would you say your driving mission behind the work that you're doing is at this point? What's the biggest lever, right? So we spend a lot of time. So the podcast, the book, all these are about how do we tell stories that mobilize people and that help people understand this work better. Uh, and then in the we do a lot of like data and policy stuff around the country. And it's about like, how do we how do we make sure that systems change? So there are a lot of people doing incredible work around individual incidents. And we felt like we didn't need to, like that space is really covered. We wanted to focus on systems. So what would it look like? In Austin, for example, the whole city council voted against a police union contract, and we work with the the protesters there, the organizers, to like help that happen and to help them organize and make sure that they were as prepared as they needed to be. And like those things are really important. So we spend a lot of time on like analyses that have never been done. So when we analyze the police union contracts in the state officers' bill of rights, that had never been done like that. When we did police union contracts, and we have some new stuff coming out that we've not yet done yet that we've not yet finished. Uh, and I'm excited about those, but it's like our bias is towards structures. Like, what does it mean to change the system? Because some of the stuff that is actually like ruining people's lives, you just haven't heard about, but only because it's not necessarily sexy, but not, uh, it's not sexy, but it is impacting a ton of people's lives. That is the most energizing thing for me when I'm seeing people who are creating solutions to the not sexy problems or who are looking at the problems that are getting a lot of attention and then instead of responding to what everybody thinks is the problem, you know, you get a level deeper and you say, okay, why don't we, you know, why don't we deal with this at a ground level? With all that said, 
I feel like you've received a good amount of criticism, uh, you know, on cable news or on, you know, kind of more conservative media. Um, and there's probably a lot of people who just, they, they don't respect or like the work that you're doing. As a part of what you're doing, are you trying to win people over? Like is in some ways, are you also trying to play the communications game of saying like, okay, wait, we can change some of these people's minds. We can change the way that they think. Or are you just head down focused on, you know, the work at hand and, you know, if people like that or don't like that, that doesn't matter. It's been interesting to talk to people. It's like, you can be pro-police and still believe these things that I believe, right? So, yeah. so I think that what is not a motivator, I think that the police have done such an incredible job of creating a sense that like, without them in, in their current form or whatever form they say, then like your community just won't be safe. The police have like nailed that narrative. So at the macro, I just think it's not an effective argument to say to people like, oh, the police, da, 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 da. I think, I think that people like have been bombarded with so many opposite images in whether it's movies or whatever that like, it just, unless people are really motivated by a particular incident, they aren't swayed by that, especially in places where there's a lot of community violence. With that said, it's like you could love the police and still acknowledge that it doesn't make sense that they destroy police officer disciplinary records every two years in Cleveland, right? You can love the police and be like, it doesn't make sense that any investigation that lasts more than a year, um, regardless of the findings, like they can't resolve discipline, right? Like you can actually believe whatever you want to believe about the police and still be like, that's just not fair. And that's been interesting to help people see is that if you love the institution the way you say you do, then you don't think they should be like held back from any accountability, do you? And what we know is that the way institutions change is, is by the way we hold people accountable. So uh, that has been our lever is that like, even for the people, if you want to dismantle the police, it's like, let's take it step by step, right? Like let's deal with overtime. Let's deal with uh, these laws that protect them. Let's deal with discipline. And like, that's how you actually do it. And we believe, because when we look back at like how the police are protected, they're not protected in like very tiny ways. They're protected in big structural ways. You're attacking these things and you're focusing on, you know, this, you know, ground level work. But theoretically, you know, as you continue to focus on that issue, you know, not necessarily talking negatively about police as a whole, but but saying, hey, here's the systemic changes that we can make uh, that make all of this better, then all of a sudden people have the opportunity to join in and be a part of that. Yep. And the thing is that like, it's, it's everywhere. So like, you know, people don't realize how close these things are until you tell them, you're like, did you know in your town, this is what, and they're like, I have no clue. It's like, yeah, you could actually get that change right now. Go call your city council member, you know? Yeah. And that's encouraging to think about. And I think that when you're leading that, when you're when you're sharing that publicly, it opens up the doors for other people to say, oh, I can do that. Like, I can join in. I can be a part of that. Really similarly, I think one of the things I really resonated with in your book was the way that you were uh, using your platform to have conversations with political leaders. So you talked about conversations you had with President Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton before and after she got the Democratic Party nomination. And you talked about how you went into those meetings with goals in mind. And I found it really, really interesting to dive into the book and realize that, or hear you talk about the fact that you went in there and these are people who, 
you know, in many ways agree with uh, you on a political level, but still you had significant issues with things that they were doing and you decided to let them know that and communicate that. When you go in and you have meetings with public officials, what are the rules and the goals that you set for yourself? Yeah, so we want to make sure that people are as informed as anybody else. So one of the things that we've seen when we support organizers around the country with data is that they there's this assumption that the people on the other side just like know more, right? They either like they know more of the facts, they da-da-da. So we work with organizers so they can be more prepared or as prepared as anybody on the other side. Like that is like always a goal. So remember with Hillary, there was no platform as that Sam actually led the creation of taking all of her public statements and creating a platform. And we had a prep call with everybody who was in the room with us so that like they would know what she said and when she said it, even though she hadn't like released an official platform yet. So those sort of things are really important. We also know that we're not the only people who can tell the truth. So part of our work is to make sure that we bring other people in the room and that we keep the door open. So, you know, in the meeting with Hillary and with um, Bernie, we made sure that there were other people invited from all across the country so that they could tell their truth and they could ask questions and they could push. And like, those things are really important to us. And the third is that we always push someone specific. So we're trying to get, we're asking Bernie about specific things. We're asking uh, Hillary about like what she believes with this certain thing. Like these are really important. Um, And like, that is what we believe with all of these meetings across the country. Man, that's great. I love the way that you're you're thinking about that. And I think that that definitely sets the tone for others who have the opportunity to get to meet with leaders and, you know, to dive in with so much intentionality is really, really valuable. Kind of as we're wrapping up this conversation, you know, I'm curious with all of this work that you're doing, all these different ways that you're having an impact, what's the legacy that you want to leave? You know, 50 years from now, what do you want to be said about you? I don't know if I have a great answer to that. I want us all to make sure that we, that for all the attention we brought to the issues and all the energy we brought that like systems and structures actually changed as a result of it. I know what I don't want to happen is that people look back in 20 years and they, and they remember uh, only the, the really interesting way we social media to bring attention and that that didn't lead to change. So I would love to see, you know, police union contracts change. I'd love to see laws change. I'd love to see, accountability for the police as they currently exist. I'd love to see us create new forms of safety in communities that don't require armed intervention or people being put in cages, right? Like, so there are a host of things I'd like to see. I also know the civil rights movement was a decade-long worth of activism, and we are, um, you know, in year four since the movement began. So, uh, so there's a lot more work to be done and a lot more time to do it. For people who are looking at the work that you're doing and they want to get involved or they want to take a step further and deeper into getting more involved, um, you know, to kind of finish off this episode, what would you recommend to them? What would uh, be your words of advice on, on how to take that next step? Yeah. If you want to work with us and I'd say um, go to joincampaignzero.org and, and sort of join our list, would love to have you be a part of it or tweet us or something like that. Um, and otherwise, and I read about this in the book, in the last section, the letter to activists, is like, you need to know an issue well. So like, find whatever the issue is that like, is your thing, uh, know it well, because you knowing one thing well will actually help you think about all of the other stuff better. It'll help you see uh, how systems intertwine. It'll help you ask better questions. And I met a lot of people who like want to do something. And the reality is the first thing they should be doing is actually like, learning more about whatever issue is their issue and then they'll just be better activists and better organizers. 
Wow, I am so challenged and inspired by the way that Dre has consistently shown up for good in the world. I love this idea that he shared how hope is the arc that we bend. Hope is the fuel of this work around civil rights, race, and social justice in America. It's important to remember that we have a part to play in bringing hope to our cities, classrooms, jobs, and homes. Hope requires participation, and DeRay models this really well. If you're not already following DeRay, you can find him on Twitter and Instagram. And like we mentioned during our conversation, DeRay has a new book out called On the Other Side of Freedom. It reveals how DeRay rose to the fore of millennial activism through study, discipline, and conviction, and will inspire you to do the same. His belief in a world that can be made better, one act at a time, is beyond powerful. I couldn't put the book down. You can pick up the book wherever you pick up books. If you're new to Sounds Good, we would love for you to stick around. You'd also love my conversation with Clint Smith, one of DeRay's co-hosts on his podcast, and Adam Foss, a prosecutor doing great work in the criminal justice system. You can find both of these episodes and more than 100 other episodes by searching for Sounds Good wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast was created by me, Brandon Harvey, as a part of Good Good Good, a community that believes in the power of celebrating good news and becoming good news. Chad Michaels-Nabley and the team at CM Studio edit, mix the show, and Christy Karenbrock offers production support. You can get lots of hopeful stories on social media by following us everywhere at goodgoodgoodco. And like we mentioned at the top of the show, issue five of the Good News Paper is here. We've just printed our newest issue of our newspaper filled with good news and we'll be shipping out papers this week. We are so excited. I am so proud of issue five. Our team has been working hard and we can't wait to show you what's inside. We've got stories to tell and we don't want you to miss out. So you can subscribe online at goodnewspaper.co or follow the link in our show notes to purchase an individual copy or subscribe to a whole year. One more time, that's goodnewspaper.co. And on that note, that is a wrap for this week's episode. Go out and remember that there is a strong case for hope when we show up for the issues we care about. We'll be back next week with another inspiring story from an incredible person. Sound good? Sound good?